Hello, welcome along. My name is Dan. Thanks for listening. This is the smartest time of the whole week because it's time for a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. In the next half hour or so, we will search through the entire universe and bring back some of the science secrets that we found lurking all around there. This week, you can hear all about big cats. If you have a cat, you will love the guest that we've got on this week. He will explain why they move as they do why they hunt as they do why your cat uh, is like some huge cats and you can hear why animals like the cheetah are so much faster than other creatures the maximum speed you can go in a skateboard is defined by how quickly you can pull your leg back when your foot is on the ground does that make sense you get to the point where if the skateboard's going too quickly you just can't push yourself forward because you can't get your leg going back quickly enough Also, we've got another episode from our brilliant Amy's Aviation series. Amy is a plane genius. She's been telling us how they stay in the air. This week, it's all about metal-framed planes. If you see an old biplane, and they're the sort with two wings, one on top of the other, on the really old ones, there are wires holding the two wings together. Engineers realise that the wings would work better if they were cantilevered. OK, that's a tricky word. It means the wings were made to be more boxy, so that they could support themselves without all those wires. The second massive change was in the fuselage. And I've got your questions as always. This week, they are on planets and plants. So stick around for a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. The launch of NASA's most powerful rocket ever has been delayed by a tropical storm. The Artemis 1 moon rocket was expected to launch from Florida last week, but threats of hurricanes postponed it for the third time. It's designed to send equipment and then people back to the moon for the first time in 50 years, and it seems we might need to wait a little while longer. Now, obviously, we we want to be back in space, but we've waited for 50 years. So I think just to make sure everything's safe, we're fine to wait a little bit longer. Also, the James Webb Space Telescope is at it again. Remember, we've spoken about the James Webb Space Telescope loads. It's the super space telescope that's up there. It's got that massive mirror. It's looking at some of the oldest stars in the universe. And it's just taken some pictures of Neptune. It's an ice giant, the last planet in the solar system. And it seems that there are rings and dust bands around the planet. It has 14 moons, and scientists are surprised by clouds that are there that might show them what's happening in Neptune's atmosphere. And finally, a panda, a red panda, born on the Isle of Man, has been moved to a wildlife park in Birmingham. Aria is her name. They are two years old. It's an endangered species. Uh, It's strange, isn't it, to have these creatures born in the UK, but red pandas need all the help they can get. It's thought there are just 2,500 left, so the more we have, wherever they're born, as long as they're happy, there are more of them, that's better. Let's catch up with Professor Hallux now for the last few weeks. Uh, he's been showing us everything about your body, what makes you happy, what makes you healthy, and what can make you sick. He's been looking at your ears, your eyes, your nose, your throat, your legs, your arms. This series, it's all about water. And how much water should you really be drinking? Maybe when you're exercising, when you're in a hot place, or if you're a little bit ill, it might be a bit more. Halix's Hydration Help Desk. Call accepted. Hello, Professor. I keep forgetting to drink enough water. 
Got any tips to help me out? Of course. Firstly, let's have a reminder of the targets, Nanobot. Well, if you're between four and eight years old, you should be having four to six glasses of water every day. If you're older, then it's six to eight glasses. Thanks, Nanobot. It sounds like a lot, but there's plenty of ways to get your fill. Have cereal at breakfast instead of toast and jam. All that lovely milk counts towards your target. It's also a good idea to get in the habit of having a glass of water with your breakfast, even if you're eating cereal. Scientists have found that most children are dehydrated at the start of the day, so get off on the right foot and you'll find you're able to concentrate better in class. And don't forget your water bottle when you go to school. If it's permitted, swap yours for a larger one or even take two on hot days. Water bottles aren't just for school. Wherever you go, it's a good idea to have a drink to hand. It also means you won't have to pay for one if you get thirsty. If your water bottle is a bit boring, why not get one with cool characters on or a nice jazzy pattern for other times? You could even start a trend and customise your own. If it's the taste that's putting you off, or the lack of taste, why not add some soft fruit into your bottle or some mint leaves for a cool, fresh taste? Mmm, minty water sounds out of this world. I've got another out-of-this-world factoid for you if you're interested, Halux. Always wow me with your water wisdom. You might think that astronauts up in space don't have many drinks to choose from. After all, there aren't any shops. But you'd be wrong. Now, whilst they can't fill up a cup, in zero gravity their drink would just float away, they can drink from sachets. And that includes tea and coffee, milk and even soft drinks like cola. Usually, the flavoured parts are freeze-dried and water is squirted in. And check this out. All of the water on board the International Space Station is made by recycling. And yes, that means the water the astronauts pass in the toilet. Of course, it might sound a bit yucky, but recycling water is something that's interesting to scientists back on Earth too. After all, no one wants to run out. Halix's Hydration Help Desk, with support from the Children's Health Fund. Find out more at funkinslive.com slash Halix. Let's get to your questions then. This is my favourite part of the show. I know I always say it. It's because I love it. I love hearing the questions that you send as voice notes on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. And then I love doing all the digging, becoming a, a science genius for you. This week, we've got one from Adele. Would people ever be able to live on another planet? Thank you for your question, Adele. The answer is maybe, but in time. Scientists can't make up their mind about that. Uh, Some scientists say we won't ever colonise, move to another planet, but some think that the only ways for humans to survive as a species is to leave Earth, because we're ruining it. Now, what we need from any planet is an atmosphere like ours here on planet Earth. We need water, we need food, and we need to be able to make more food and oxygen. Experts have been looking at Mars. It's the fourth planet from the sun. Now, its temperature isn't too different from ours. The gravity isn't so strong, so we wouldn't be squashed or immediately scorched when we get there. We'd need to make the right homes, though, because there's no oxygen on Mars. So we'd need to probably make domes or big pods that you might see in sci-fi movies just to pump air around so that we can breathe. Uh, But recently, scientists have found ice frozen on Mars 
which means there might be water there that we can harvest to try and survive, Adele. Thank you for the question. Also, William has sent one in. Hello, my name is William and I am seven years old and I want to know what is chlorophyll. Now, chlorophyll is a very important chemical in the world. Uh, It's in plants and it makes them green. Chlorophyll helps plants suck up sunlight and it uses them in photosynthesis. Have you heard about this in school yet? Photosynthesis keeps everything in the world alive, really. uh, And chlorophyll helps out with that. It uses the sunlight to make carbohydrates, a type of energy that uses carbon dioxide and water. So for plants to live, they need carbon dioxide, but they breathe out oxygen, which helps us live. Then what do we do? Breathe out carbon dioxide, which helps the plant. So it goes around and round and round, and chlorophyll really helps to do this. And it makes plants green as well. So you know if a plant's greener, it's normally healthier. William, thank you for the question. If there's something you want answered on this show... Uh, record it on a phone, on a tablet or computer, whatever it is. Send it to the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Let's do this week's Dangerous Stand there, where we look at some of the most mean and cruel things in the universe. Uh, this week, it's all about one of the most incredible birds of prey around. You'll find the Shrike across Europe and Africa mostly, where they're known by a more terrifying name. The shrike is also called the butcher bird. Now, they're not a huge creature like some other menacing birds of prey. They are white-bellied. Sometimes they've got a blue back and a dark blue face. Now, they're not normally big enough to catch other birds mid-flight, so they have to get creative with their way of getting a meal. And how they do that, listen to this. Normally, they fly over another bird. They quickly swoop down, striking them once and stunning them which makes the prey drop to the floor. Then the shrike flies down and delivers another blow right through the creature's neck, but it's not done then, and it gets kind of gruesome. It lifts the bird up. It can fly away with it now, and it will drop it over a thick, sharp branch or thorny shrub, maybe some barbed wire, skewering the prey. What's worse, they don't always eat it then. Sometimes they'll leave it there, hanging waiting around and coming back for a meal later so for this reason this gruesome reason this sweet looking creature the shrike earns its name as the butcher bird and a place on our dangerous stand list you're listening to the fun kids science weekly now this week we're talking about a creature that's very close to my heart um, uh, you might have heard before, I've got a, a cat. Her name is Tiggy. She can be incredibly cute, but also just so mean and boisterous. So I'm thinking, what are these creatures like in the wild? What are the big ones like? We're going to find out about big cats today with Dr. Alan Wilson, who is a big cat researcher and is also judging the Royal Society Book Prize this year. Alan, thank you for being there. Thank you. So let's start at the start for you. What made you focus your work and your science on big cats? Well, my background, I used to do sport. I was a runner for many years and I qualified as a vet and I also studied sports science at university. So I've always had an interest in fast athletes, be them human or animal. And I started off working with racehorses and greyhounds. And once you've looked, the interesting thing about our sort of 
the racehorse, the greyhound and the hare is they all run at about 40 miles an hour. So you've got the sort of natural limit to running. And then we hear about the cheetah and the, we all know the cheetah is the fastest land animal and the sort of fascination of this, the actual measurements of 65 miles an hour in a cheetah was were performed by someone called Craig Sharp, who was also a vet from Glasgow, who was also in the sports science world. He was exercise physiologist to the Human Fish Olympic team for many years. And he, when he was in Kenya, decided they decided they had a pet cheetah. So in best sort of um, daring do experiments, they used a cheetah in a Land Rover and a bit of meat and um, did three timed runs into and against the wind, like an athletics measurement. And this was back in 1965. And that was the only really valid measurement of the maximum running speed of the cheetah. So talking to Craig, it was sort of, oh, this is what a pet cheetah does. Pet che- cheetah? Uh, yes, it was a, a handier <laughs> cheetah. You get quite a lot of pet cheetahs. So what do they do in the wild? Surely they must go very much faster when they're motivated by chasing a prey. So at the time we were building GPS kit to go in birds and so on. So we put GPS on cheetahs and captured data when they were hunting. and. To our amazement, we found that they didn't run anything like as fast as a pet cheetah. They run, they run much slower. And that sort of led us into thinking about, well, what is it about hunting? And you, um, it's about maneuverability and the ability to turn and respond to the prey. And if you're running really quickly, it's really hard to turn. And you can see the sort of thing, the same thing in the children's, you know, in the playground at school. They, used to be a game called British Bulldogs, I think is severely banned nowadays where um, people would try and catch each other. And at that point, you don't run fast. It's all about turning. It's being able to stop and maneuver. So it's about the interaction between the prey and the predator that we've got sort of fascinated in and what are the tactics each uses in hunting. And you find it's very much more about turning, very much more about the ability to accelerate. So it's kind of sports science of animals in Africa. So what makes a cheetah so fast you said that the ones you found out in the wild don't really reach that top speed at all but the the pet cheetah which still bamboozles my brain they can get really really fast you know 65 miles an hour and then some what makes that animal able to be so quick okay i mean the the wild ones are can be quick it's just a case of they don't often need to be so we we saw um, close to 60 miles an hour in our wild cheetahs are still incredibly fast. But it's it's about just having lots of muscle, being very powerful, being flexible. So all the all the sort of attributes of speed come together in the cheetah um, and make it fast. And it's a bit like if you look at a rugby player or a footballer, they can actually run. You know, if, they, if you ask them to run 100 meters, they would be pretty quick because they're lean, they're muscular, and they've got all the attributes of a sprinter. It's just, it's not what they do in their day-to-day job. So what the cheetah has to do is to be able to turn and maneuver and accelerate. So it's got lots of very powerful muscle. And if it chooses to do that and run really quickly, it can. The problem is if the cheetah's coming along at 60 miles an hour and the antelope is going going at 30 miles an hour, then all the antelope has to do is jump slightly to the side and the cheetah will sail straight past. So there's a sort of a dynamics of movement, which means you don't want to be going faster than your prey or you're much less manoeuvrable than your prey. So with all the big cats, what makes one a better hunter and more successful with its um, hunts than others? Is it is it down to speed? Is it down to uh, awareness of what's around them? What makes one a brilliant hunter? I mean, there's a variety of strategies used by the big cat. I mean, we look at the, we talk about the cheetah as being the ultimate 
cursorial predator. By cursorial, it runs after its food. It chases down its prey. And a cheetah's a relatively small cat. It's about 60 kilograms or so. Um, small in the world, a big cat's obviously somewhat bigger than the cat you've got at home. Um, and that means it's going to hunt sort of the medium-sized antelope that are about the same weight as it. If you go, so cheetahs will run. Leopards are much more of a stealth predator, so they will stalk their prey and pounce on it out of trees and so on. Then you have lions, which will often hunt larger, less agile prey and will hunt as a group and also will take kills from other animals. So possibly you know, an equally interesting comparison is to compare the cheetah to the African wild dog, where the African wild dog is less fast, less agile, but it can afford to be successful less often in its hunts because it's in a pack. So a cheetah catches something, it will eat its fill, and then the rest will go to some other animal or go to waste. If a pack of dogs, if one of the dog catches something, then all the dogs in the pack can eat because they cooperate in feeding. So there's a benefit there, which means dogs, dogs are, you know, cheetahs about one time in three, they actually catch what they're hunting. Dogs about one time in six, they catch what they're hunting. So you see the dogs are the big disadvantage, but it isn't because it, the food will then be shared with the other dogs in the pack. So many options, the best option depends on the terrain, depends on what the prey is and depends on the size of the social group. I'm just, I'm still amazed at how one creature can be so fast. This is even the case with humans. So <clears throat> what is it about these muscles that allow them to spring so far in a certain amount of time? So y you mentioned that you're uh, originally a runner there, Alan. So uh, in running, you have your, your cadence, don't you, which is the amount of steps you're taking. Wh why is one person or one animal able to move much quicker but still do exactly the same amount of steps that I'm doing at a much slower rate? Well, they will take, I mean, they will take bigger steps than you or longer steps than you because they have probably got somewhat longer legs. They've probably got somewhat more powerful muscle, more powerful legs because a group, perhaps a greater proportion of their body is muscle than you are. Um, I don't know, having never met you. Um, <laughs> yeah, but secondly, right. the muscle itself can contract very quickly. If you imagined going on a skateboard, the maximum speed you can go on a skateboard is defined by how quickly you can pull your leg back when your foot is on the ground. Does that make sense? You get to the point where if the skateboard's going too quickly, you just can't push yourself forward because you can't get your leg going back quickly enough. You and I run, our legs are attached to our body at, a hip, at our hip, and that's what defines how long our leg is. For the cheetah, its whole back, its whole spine is also part of its back leg. So it's effectively got longer legs because of its back, because it's able to use its back there. Now you're judging the Royal Society Book Prize this year. Just tell us a bit about the subjects that some of the um, entries have focused on this year? Well, the subjects were vast. I mean, we started with over 100 books and finally came down to a short list of six to go out to schools. So every subject imaginable was covered. And I think you know, the short list of six books that we had, they're on different subjects from, you know, from wolves in Yellowstone to microbes to how things were built to foods. And all of them, I think, they're all nice books that you can pick up, you can dip into, read a single page. It gives things to talk about or consider. And the, the nice thing about, to me, the nice thing about books is un unlike, a, for example, a podcast or a video, you can stop, you can pause, you can think about where you go with that. And 
it's about starting a conversation, starting a speculation, starting the imagination. So I think they're all, you know, all the books are great for just stimulating one's curiosity and imagination. And that's what science is about. I mean, we all say that a successful scientist has got childlike curiosity. Yes, it's about fun. It's about challenging norms. It's about exploring how things work and coming up with alternative explanations. So they sort of stimulate that sort of thinking process and interaction, which is what's important in being a scientist. So if it makes people curious or helps people be curious and go, oh, I want to know why, why we eat microbes or why there are so many microbes in my gut or whatever, then I think the books are doing that job. Amazing. Listen, uh, good luck with the judging. Dr. Alan Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, thank you. Let's catch up with Amy then from Amy's Aviation. This is our series all about what's in the sky and how the planes stay up there. Uh, Amy loves planes and she loves teaching you all about them. We've heard all about paper planes and about wooden planes and how they stay up in the air. This week, it's all about metal planes. Amy's Aviation, with support from the Royal Aeronautical Society. We're at an aviation museum in Duxford today. It's a seriously cool place with stacks of vintage planes to check out. We've been learning about the Second World War at school, and if you like planes as much as me, that means one thing and one thing only. The Spitfire! It's got to be one of the most famous planes, like, ever! You might have seen one fly past if you've been lucky enough to go to an air show or a big event. There were over 20,000 of them built during the war, but today just 50 are still flying. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Planes like the Spitfire don't look that different to small planes today. But they looked very different to the ones that were used in the First World War. Do you know why? You got it! They were constructed from metal, not wood. They were much safer and faster and much, much more comfortable than the planes that came before. But actually, it wasn't the metal that could take the credit for all of that. There were two massive changes to the way that planes were made. The first was how the wings were put together. Come on, I'll show you. If you see an old biplane, and they're the sort with two wings, one on top of the other, on the really old ones, there are wires holding the two wings together. Engineers realised that the wings would work better if they were cantilevered. OK, that's a tricky word. It means the wings were made to be more boxy so that they could support themselves without all those wires. The second massive change was in the fuselage. The fuselage is the sausage-shaped part of the plane where the pilot sits. Early planes were put together with wooden slats and then covered in a skin made from materials like cotton. The designers realised that if the skin could hold the whole thing together, then the slatty bits inside wouldn't be needed. Then the plane would be lighter and so could fly even faster. If you like choc ices, think of it like this. The outside hard chocolate gives the ice cream its shape, but also holds it together, doesn't it? It's the same idea with the plane, although with planes they have a fancy name for it. It's called a monocoque fuselage. Hey, maybe the choc ice has a monochoc fuselage. <laughs> In the early days, monocoque fuselages were made with wood, gluing layers and layers of thin strips together and pressing them into shape. As technology changed, it became possible to mould metal into thin layers and that's when fuselages became metal. Metal also brought stacks of other advantages. One was to do with the weather. 
wood might be light and strong, but when it gets wet, like in heavy rain, well, it can swell up and warp. That's not a good idea in a plane that needs to stay in one piece. Metal has another advantage. It's much more durable too. If you're going to crash, well, I think I'd rather be in a metal plane and not a wooden one. And as long as it was high in the sky, I'd have loved to be in a Spitfire. A famous pilot said, Spitfires have hit the ground, touched the sea, bashed through trees, cut telegraph and high-tension wires, collided in the air, been shot to pieces, had rudders and parts of wings fall off, and have yet made safe landings with or without wheels. That pretty much sums up why so many people love this little plane. It wasn't the only fighter plane in World War II, but it's the one that most people remember, partly due to its memorable name. Spitfire comes from an Elizabethan word for a fiery person, and you wouldn't want to argue with a Spitfire in combat. The inventor was a Mr. Mitchell, who was the chief designer of Supermarine Aviation Works. He and his team designed the Spitfire to be agile and quick, and to make the most of new technologies like retractable undercarriages. That's wheels that can tuck away inside the plane. It even had a bulging cockpit so that tall pilots could fit in. Being slow, but the Spitfire could reach 315 miles per hour and travel 400 miles to find the enemy. The RAF used Spitfires up until 1955 for a variety of roles, from fighting to reconnaissance. That's spying. And now I spy that it's time for me to fly. Chocks away! And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If there is a science question that you want answered next week, uh, get a phone out, borrow your mum or dad's if that's okay. It's absolutely free. Record your question as a voice note, send it on the free Fun Kids app or upload it to funkidslive.com. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are loads more podcasts that we make that you can hear from. You've heard some of Halleck and Amy's Aviation today. We've got tons of them on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio on the app or at funkidslive.com. Shh.